Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Barbara Robinson, founding director of Movement School, a free public charter school based in Charlotte, North Carolina. In this episode, we discuss Barbara's journey focused on public education. It all started fairly early when she encountered a friend who was deaf in sixth grade, and she and a friend were compelled to learn sign language in order to communicate with them. And that was really the start of her interest in sign language that translated to deaf education and more broadly, public education. One of the most interesting topics that we discussed was how it felt to be a Black woman in this field of education focused on the deaf and the complexities behind that, where you're growing up feeling as part of the minority your whole life, but in the field of deaf education where you can hear, you're part of the majority. And I just thought that was super, super interesting. And also, I loved her take on what it was like to coach varsity basketball to deaf athletes and how she had to adjust some of her strategy and tactics to her players. I'm overwhelmed at the size of Barbara's heart and also her mission to educate. And we discussed what education really means and how that isn't just a teacher-to-student exchange, but rather a kind of comprehensive mutual exchange where both parties are open to receiving and learning from each other. Barbara is incredibly self-reflective, and I love how she applies that to her school's curriculum and core values. On top of starting a brand new school during a pandemic, Barbara is also a mother to three little boys under the age of seven, and I had to ask her tips of how she does it all. And although we do acknowledge it takes a village, it also takes a vineyard these days. (laughs) Please enjoy this conversation with the amazing Barbara Robinson. Hello, Barbara. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So we are recording this in mid-September. And I know that your school, which we'll get into, your school started the same day that my kids' school started, which is August 11th. And I don't know about you, but the last four weeks, I feel like I've aged four years. (laughs) And I'm not even on the educational side. I just feel like my son goes to second grade now, and it's 100% virtual learning. The staff and the teachers, they have done an extraordinary job of making it more energetic and just keeping up with the enthusiasm to make the kids excited for school. I give my major hats off to you guys for, for making it so fun, but I can only imagine your workload because you have three young boys at home, and as the listeners will hear soon, you actually opened up a school this year, and <laughs> so this is the first year, all of that stuff, which I think is just incredible, so major thank you to you for all that you've done for that and juggling all that, so amazing work. Thanks. I have to absolutely shout out my husband for that because he's been crazy helpful with manning down the fort and actually taking on additional roles that normally he would have to take on, but doing it with grace. So amazing. Well, speaking of, I want to massively thank Christian for introducing us. And I joked with him that after we met that I am totally going directly to his better half every single time and going (laughs) forward. So sorry, Christian, I like Barbara a little bit more now. Well, if it's okay with you, I know that our listeners really enjoy hearing a lot about childhood stories and backgrounds. So before we get into your work as being a true educational leader, can rewind a little bit and share with our listeners where you grew up? Sure. So I'm originally from Athens, Georgia, which is a college town in Georgia, known for the University of Georgia. Pretty much most of the town is directly related to the university in some way. Huge, huge SEC team. So go dogs. Very excited. Georgia fan. But grew up in Georgia. I grew up in Athens. And my dad is a dentist. And he and my mom actually started his dental practice in 1974. And actually, my dad is still practicing to this day. He's one of those people who he will work until that's it. (laughs) But he and my mom started my dad's dental practice. And so I grew up in the office. I grew up watching and being a part of their entrepreneurial journey. 
And I think that a lot of that has carried over into who I am today, specifically seeing firsthand the incredible amount of hard work it takes to do what you love and to do it with a high expectation for success. My dad is a visionary, has always been. And so it's nice. He and my mom are a nice yin and yang that way. Growing up, we were the kids that were very often be at my dad's office after school until, you know, eight or nine o'clock at night, because once the office closed, it was like, now we're preparing and doing the business piece of building the business, right? So that's a lot of what has helped me become who I am. My dad was incredibly, and my parents involved in the community. So tons of philanthropic work that just naturally happened, I think, because of who they are. So we grew up in the office, but then also in the community, feeding the homeless or a part of organizations that were about giving back and about uplifting the community. I mean, my parents are surely caring and loving people and they recognize the responsibility of those who are given much, much is required. And I do absolutely know that they live that out. I wouldn't say, oh, my parents are community activists or anything like that. I think it's really more they just truly care about people and they love people. And so it's how can we help? How can we be a part? And how can we bring our four kids into the, into the mix while we were younger? So it's great. I grew up in the same house, same town all my life. And then I married Christian who is military and grew up living in over nine different places before high school. So that contrast has been really fun. (laughs) I know that my brother will love this story primarily because he's a dentist. And so he's going to say, I knew it. It's the dentist background. And he's going to just say it's that part. (laughs) But he will be saddened to hear that you didn't follow your dad's footsteps and follow the molars. And (laughs) I was very clear. I never had that itch, never even looked into it. One part of your childhood I wanted to get into, because I know that we spoke about this the last time we had this call, is you had an encounter with a deaf student early on. Can you share what that was? Absolutely. Yeah. So when I was in middle school, there was a deaf boy, Josh, who was mainstreamed into two of my classes, so science and math. Prior to meeting him, I don't really recall ever having a real encounter with a person who is deaf or hard of hearing. I didn't think much about it until obviously with his interpreter. Seeing the interpreter, it was like, oh my gosh, you can talk without talking, which was a huge deal for a sixth grade girl who doesn't mind talking. But then also really, I fell in love with the language. It was really beautiful. American Sign Language is just one of the most beautiful languages that I've ever encountered. What I loved was, yes, here is a woman who is interpreting for this boy It's something else that struck me was, yes, as mesmerized as I was with the language. And I was like, oh my gosh, I definitely want to be able to do that. I saw pretty early on, she was giving access, but then also in some ways her access was also a barrier for the hearing kids in the classroom because we felt like we needed to know this language in order to communicate with our classmate. I really think that that's just God planting seeds for later on in my career and in my life. But I just remember my friend and I were like, oh, we're going to learn this language. So we did. We went to the library and borrowed books. And American Sign Language is a pictorial language. It's a 3D language. Obviously, you're, you're using your hands. Um, and it's not just the hands. It's the facial expressions. And like there's so many different parameters that go into it or components that go into it. Of course, we didn't know any of that in sixth grade. We were just like, hey, here's a book. And we want to learn. I laugh, especially now when I think about it. And I tell people, we learned the alphabet because that's what you do. It was the easiest thing. But we learned the alphabet and we literally would spell out every single word to him because we didn't know the signs. We just knew the alphabet. So it was like H-O-W-A-R-E-Y-O-U. <laughs> and then, but he, I know, but you know, when I think about that and I'm like, how as a hearing person, I would never want someone to talk to me. It would just take forever. I probably wouldn't have the patience. But for Josh, I really think because he was so hungry for peer interaction from people who were not necessarily deaf or hard of hearing, but just someone who wanted to take a step and just communicate with him on a peer level, he absolutely was patient with us and he would teach us the signs. And then his interpreters would see what we were doing and then she would teach us signs as well. And then it became where we were starting off with spelling every word to had very pat phrases, but at least it was, there were phrases that it was like, okay, I know this word, this, or this sign, this sign, this sign. And then we would spell out maybe one or two words. So the evolution was great, but then also just 
within the evolution of learning the language, it was also becoming friends with someone. And that really stuck with me. I knew from that moment in sixth grade that I wanted to work with deaf people. I wanted to use the language and learn the language. And then also recognizing that the language belongs to a group of people. It serves a very important purpose. And again, not just for communication, but there's it's a source of identity for people within the deaf community and a source of pride. Again, I really think that a lot of seeds were being planted in my sixth grade year, but that really is what stuck with me and propelled me to consider an undergraduate. I majored in speech and audiology, thinking that, yes, I want to work with deaf people and this is the way to do it. I got into my practicum and realized that I don't necessarily want to be a speech therapist. And I was, had always been more interested in the audiological side. I joke because I think I would have been a doctor if I maybe really wanted to work with the body. <laughs> but I realized that I didn't really want to do that. I was more of a heart person. So I wanted to, obviously, that pushed me into education. But I was always more fascinated with the audiological side of my major. And so I was like, maybe an audiologist. But then the more I learned about American Sign Language and the connection to the deaf community, I realized that I don't see deafness as something that needs to be fixed. My understanding of how deafness is a part of identity and something to be proud of and something to celebrate was something that, again, it came much deeper later, but I do know that I felt that in undergrad and I went into deaf education (laughs) instead. (laughs) So you went from, I mean, that's a beautiful story. And I credit you and your friend in sixth grade to saying, you know what, here's a new friend and here's a language we're going to learn because we want to connect with him. That's beautiful. And so from sixth grade on, you kept with it. You were interested in it enough to study within college. Where did you go to college? And then did you get a master's after that? I went to the University of Georgia, majored in speech pathology, audiology. While I was in my, I think my sophomore year through my senior year of college, I did take American Sign Language classes. So actually the first class I took was, I think it's called Sign Exact English. So it's not a language, it's really more of a code to connect hand gestures to English language. So I took that and then I moved into American Sign Language. And when I did, my professor at the time had graduated from Gallaudet University, which is the only deaf liberal arts university in the world. And she was the one who really helped our class pushed us to see the connection between the language and the community and pushed us to actually go out and meet deaf people, go out and interact. Again, for college students, I think she did it the way that she knew we would probably care most, which is to make it part of our grade. So she arranged for us to meet different deaf people within the Athens and Georgia community. And it was awesome. I remember going to her and I was like, so my major is speech pathology, audiology. Not quite sure if I want to do either of those, but it's my senior year and I am not going to be an undergrad any longer. Like I had a plan or I thought I had a plan at least for not having an extra year. So she was like, well, Barbara, have you thought about deaf education? And I was like, no, I'm not at all. For whatever reason, I hadn't put the two together. She was like, it is a thing and you should definitely look more into it. And fortunately, my major was housed in the School of Education at Georgia. So it wasn't like a far reach or anything like that. And as I mentioned, I thought maybe I would want to be a doctor, but I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. But I struggled internally with teachers don't get enough respect, the teachers don't have enough pay, da 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 And so I don't know if I see myself as a teacher. I think I see myself as all these other things. But at the heart, absolutely, I was that little girl who would line up my teddy bears and include my younger sister in that and play school. I had that internally. It's just how did I want it to manifest? I did some research, went and observed a classroom of an elementary deaf education self-contained class at our local elementary school. And I fell in love. I was like, yes, I want to do this. So I applied to the deaf education program at Gallaudet University because again, I knew I wanted to be in deaf education. I knew from my professor that Gallaudet is really the place to go when you're looking to learn the most that you can about deaf community, about deaf people. And I wanted to make sure that I had as much as I could from the best source. I went to Gallaudet University for graduate school and I received my master's in deaf education. Can you rewind a little bit? You had mentioned that the teacher in your undergrad had mentioned to really, and as part of the academic program, was to meet more deaf people and to go out there and meet the community. What were some of the things that you learned from that 
lesson because it seems like a really impactful thing. But I'm curious because you had mentioned as you're learning this new language just to go out and meet more deaf people. What did you learn from that experience? I learned the power of initiative. And by that, I mean, when I went out and I met the deaf people that I did, as nervous and scared and anxious as I was, and really for me, it was what if I don't know how to say what I want to say? And what happens if I make a mistake? Or what else am I going to talk about? Obviously, we went with a list of questions. But it was just that feeling for me of like, oh my gosh, what if I'm not enough? Because I'm not going to be able to fully communicate or if I make a mistake. And what I realized is, yes, I brought all of that. But then for the deaf person, again, this became more apparent the closer I became to the deaf community and the deeper I was in the deaf community. But even in college, those same kind of feelings, that's what several people that I met, they were coming to the conversation with the same thing for English or spoken language. So it was kind of interesting because there's commonality there, but we both didn't realize it until we got there. And then, so there's that power of initiative. And then there's also just the, the reality of, okay, so we came and we're here. And then it all works out because we're having this conversation and it's a beautiful thing. And there's connection there. Even if it's on a very surface level, there is that, oh my gosh, I was so nervous. Me too. Oh, okay. So now that we got that out of the way, like now what else can we talk about, right? Or what else can we connect on? And that just opens the door for that humanity piece. And I think that that's something that I carried away with me from those interactions. And it was a force to like, get over yourself. Typically, I speak for myself, I want to come with my best self and like you put all this pressure and all the things. And then when you get there, it's just like, hey, let's focus on the things that really matter. And it's 99% of the time, not you. <laughs> so I love that. My husband and I are actually just talking about the phrase connection, not perfection. Mm, and I absolutely love, I love it that. because the pursuit to perfection, I think makes everyone just more stressed and, and all that. And it's the ultimate idea to remind yourself, it's just about connection. And I should just take out the word just because if you were to be able to connect, that's the most powerful thing. So I love that. I love that. I'm going to put that down for myself. I actually, I, maybe I'll name the episode Connection, Not Perfection. And so after Gallaudet, what did you do after getting your master's? Received my master's and moved to New York. And my now husband was there and I thought maybe I would be going back to Georgia. It was a big deal to go to New York. I was not that girl who grew up thinking I would go to the big city and it actually was a really big city. But being in DC at Gallaudet, I fell in love with DC and I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to ever go back south. So when Christian was in New York, I was like, this is the next step. So I applied for a teaching position at New York School for the Deaf. And I kind of joke with the team now at affectionately called Fanwood, but I joke with them now because I was like, I had to set up my own interview. You guys didn't want to like, <laughs> I was a pretty driven person, but I saw on the website that they possibly had a teaching position, but they weren't quite sure. So I had called and spoke to the HR person and she's like, well, we're interested, but we're just not sure. And I think part of it was they just didn't know if they had teachers who were, who were retiring or not. And so they didn't want to commit. And I was like, well, how about this? How about I come on campus and I just want to see your campus. I'd love to learn more. Let's do that. So I, that was really how I got my interview. <laughs> I was like, let's just come in and tour the campus. But as the cab pulled into the campus, I fell in love and I knew this is where I'm going to be. And fortunately, it all worked out. I actually ended up having an interview during my Let Me See Your Campus tour <laughs> visit. And it was amazing. I immediately felt at home. I immediately felt purpose. I truly fell in love. I was there for over 10 years and started as an elementary school teacher, progressed into the special education coordinator, and then moved into a principal position there for lower school. And it was an amazing thing. And because my family was in Georgia, Fanwood absolutely became my family. So outside of being in the classroom, I was an elementary school teacher, but then also high school advisor for juniors and seniors. So I got a taste of high school. But then I was also the girls basketball coach for several years. And that was just one of the most amazing experiences, I would say, of my life because I grew up playing basketball, knew the game, knew the sport, was super excited about doing it. And it taught me a lot about how to teach because coaching is teaching. And when you do it really well, it can stretch you in the same ways. Doing that for 14 to 19 year old girls on a team and then trying to actually get us all together to collectively do a sport and 
all the fun hormones of girls. And (laughs) it was good. It was definitely an, an experience that helped shape me and made me a better teacher, but also just gave me an expanded lens of kids because even our high school kids are kids. And so how we treat them, but at the same time, I'm also going to hold you accountable for the expectation of preparing you for life outside of the school. So they were teaching me things. And then for me, it was, I want to make sure you're prepared for what you need when you graduate. There's a wonderful coach I interviewed, Rose Schoen, who thinks the same thing, that coaching is teaching. And her coaching methodology actually incorporates academics in that she won't teach kids who fall below a certain grade point average because she wants them to know like this is life and you have to work hard and there's you know certain minimum requirements that she expects before she coaches them. So I love that. Can you expand on the differences or complementary educational material that deaf education has? Is it a typical curriculum like non-deaf education or what is in addition to some of the curriculum that you may add to your program? Yeah, that's a really great question and a very layered one, I think. You know, within deaf education, specifically when we think about learning to read and learning to read English, which I should specify a bit more, that was something that we were constantly trying to figure out because the English language is phonetic. Yet, if I don't hear the sounds or if I cannot pronounce or say the sounds, how am I learning to read, right? phonetically, that process is just very different. And of course, with the advancements of technology with children with cochlear implants, even adults with cochlear implants and the, or even hearing aids, which allow for more access to sound sooner, right? So it's a little bit of, it may be a different journey for children now, but for our children who truly are deaf and who do not hear those sounds, that was something that as a school, we were trying to figure out, well, how can we make English language accessible to you and build your understanding of this language so that you're able to have access to the world, to information. And that information is going to help you become more successful in life. And the success really just comes with, hey, you can actually access information. You cannot just access it, but you can understand it and you can be a part of the information that's being, that's out in the environment. So long story short, It continues to be a conversation. I think we as a school tried a lot of different things. That's just part of my leadership. I'm like, hey, we're going to try it and it'll let us know if it's not working. And at the end of the day, it's going to be a lot of different things probably that we're going to put together to make this thing work. And understanding that children learn differently and every child truly is an individual. So yes, as a school, and even now I tell my teachers, it's like in our backpack, we have as many tools and resources as we can to be able to pull out for our kids. It's truly about figuring out what piece is going to fit in the puzzle of the child. So we use that approach at Fanwood, at New York School for the Deaf, for many children with great success and also with great opportunities for growth as well. It wasn't, oh, 100%. And to be very honest, I think that that is something that even within deaf education is something that continues to be a question. There isn't one right way. And that's something that I would tell my teachers often. I was like, look, we're pioneering, which means that we're going through the woods. We're trampling on things. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be flat because we're trying to do a thing that hasn't been done before, period. And so it's going to be hard and the answer's not there. And so that was for sure full of challenges. But at the same time, for those programs and those pieces that we were able to put together for our students and learning to read was amazing to see, which is exciting. What is it like to coach deaf children? It makes you figure out a way. For example, to realize the things that you take for granted as a hearing person and a hearing culture, even if you think of like, like I think about like on the basketball court, I am so used to yelling because that's what you do, right? You're like, hey, da-da-da-da-da, or da-da-da-da-da. Well, that doesn't work if I cannot hear you. So something as simple, but not simple, I always had a towel. I always had a white towel or a blue towel. And working with my girls and co- as part of coaching and teaching them, when you see my towel, you need to train yourself to look. Even if it's one person who's looking, and typically it was my point guard, I was like, hey, if you see the towel, you've got to come look because I'm giving you the message or I'm giving you the symbol or whatever it is for the play call or whatever it may be. And it's your responsibility to help spread that 
to the team. Something that made the experience probably one of the best and one of the hardest things was I have high expectations. I, and I always tell people, I'm not going to put expectations on you that I wouldn't have on myself. But that includes my students. That includes my players. So oftentimes for my players, yes, I was coaching varsity girls basketball, but many of my players had never played basketball before. And not because they didn't have the skill, they didn't have access, even if they wanted to play in camps or even if they wanted to go to play rec leagues within their neighborhoods. Language was always a barrier, even if they themselves would have been fine trying to figure it out. Typically, if it's a hearing team, the hearing coach is like, oh, I don't know how to do this. So maybe it's better if you don't, or I don't know if this is going to work, but safety-wise, da 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 So then it became a liability to have a deaf person on my team. So the point being that they didn't grow up participating in rec leagues or participating in camps. When they would play with us, I found myself frustrated with that truth because it's not fair, especially when I saw how good my girls were. And for me, it's like, wow, so many opportunities that you could have had beyond high school had you had more time. So we did a summer camp. My first year of coaching, or after my first year of coaching, which was awesome, my girls are 14. So I was like, but the amount of growth that I saw in that week of camp was just unbelievable. And I was like, well, hey, here's a starting point. I wish we could start this when you're eight years old. I wish that we could do this when our girls are younger so that they're not playing catch up in some ways, right? But also to me, it goes deeper and it really goes to belonging and really sending that message that, hey, you're enough, or hey, someone from the majority is going to figure out a way to make this thing that we're doing accessible to you, that we're going to pause what we're doing to pay attention to you enough to figure out how you can be a part of this. That was that bigger message that was frustrating to me because I would like to think that as a society, majority-wise, that's not necessarily how everyone feels, but that's absolutely how we get painted because oftentimes people don't pause to figure it out because the figuring out takes time. So saying all that to say, I would hold my girls to that expectation. I was used to practices, my coaches. I started playing really young, so I was used to, you run, you get in shape, you're disciplined, and you want to be here, you show that you want to be here. So I brought that mentality to my girls, and I'll never forget, we had a game, and it was just a horrible game. Like, the girls were just... It was like almost as if we'd never played basketball before. And so after the game, I did what my coach would have done in high school. And was like, all right, let's go to the small gym. And I was like, all right, girls, you didn't want to run during the game. You kind of didn't want to even play. So you didn't want to run then, so we're going to run now. And I remember I had them running suicides. And I had two girls on my team, and both of them were one particular was very much like the vocal leader of the team, but just also controlling. And so I think she dominated the culture even when others didn't necessarily want her to, if that makes sense. Long story short, she was like, you can't make us run. And I was like, oh, but I can if you want to be on the team. Pretty sure I said something like, oh, your legs are fresh because you, you, you didn't use them during the game. So we're going to run. And I was like, it's not just about running. I was like, it's about what's your commitment? Do you want to be better? Because you just got blown out by a team that you're better than and you didn't show that. So we need to get to the place where we can show who we are at all times. They were like, we're not doing it. Finally, they did it. But then afterwards, the next day, I get called into the headmaster's office and he's like, so two of your players came and they wanted to share that you made them run after the game. And I was like, I did. And I told him exactly why. And I said, I don't apologize for that because it wasn't about running for the sake of running. It was about running because, hey, you are better and you have to be disciplined within yourself, regardless of whatever is going on, but you're going to show up if you have a game. You're going to show up to this thing that you committed to. And he's like giving me a high five. He's like, all right, we talked about it. Good. <laughs> like we're done. I was like, okay, good. But what that taught me was, which was part of the struggle that I had was, what are the expectations that people are putting on you? And so on my, on my players, on my students, and even people within the deaf community, I would be like, say, you can be better. And it's not that you don't want to be. I think that no one's really ever pushed you to be. People do what you expect of them. And so if you put those high expectations on them, they're going to rise to it. And sure, like we know all of the stories about that being unhealthy. Sure. But if it's done well and it's done right because it's done in a place of love or in a place of truly caring for other people, we're going to get there. So in coaching, that was one part. But even when I was coaching teachers, that was something that came up as well. Always challenging my teachers because many of our teachers near school for the deaf are hearing. And so as a hearing person, 
there's always work on what are your true feelings about the deaf children that you are teaching? Do you see them as, oh, you poor thing, and do you take pity? Are you in this for pity, or are you in this because you see them as a person who has true potential and true purpose, and it's your job to actually make that happen? That was often not an easy conversation because that takes internal work, right, and then reflection. And I think for many hearing people within deaf education or just even within special education, people are like, oh, my God, you teach deaf children. You're such a great person. Am I? am I a great person? You don't know if I'm a great person, but like, no, because there are horrible teachers across the board, but just because I teach in a deaf school or I work with deaf people or I work with special education, it's like, you're a saint. Not necessarily, you know? So I would always push that with teachers, but if you're always being told that you are a great person because of what you do, then someone's pushing you to actually check who you are in what you do, then it's a Oh, oh, I'm not comfortable with that. Or Barbara, no, I don't want to go through this exercise, or I don't want to answer this question, or I don't want to put in this work that it takes to like truly see how I am functioning within this teacher-child versus teacher-student relationship as it relates like working on myself as the teacher and not just being quick to blame the child or the child's disability for lack of progress. Thinking about a teacher teaching all students, all types, whether deaf, hearing, and all that. But you had mentioned something that I wanted to unpack a little bit further because I thought it was so interesting. This is an audio podcast, so people don't know, but I'm speaking to a bold Black woman who has done so much in education. And you can't tell that because it's not a visual podcast. And so you had mentioned something about how deaf students thought of you as someone from the majority, which is an interesting profile because looking at you, you would never think, oh, Barbara Robinson would say, yes, I'm part of the majority. (laughs) And so can you unpack how that felt teaching as generally in every other circumstance, you are part of the minority with a lot of other complex issues surrounding that. Here you are in deaf education where you actually are part of the majority. I mean, that is so much stuff to unpack. So I'd love to just to hear you riff on that. Yeah, welcome to my two years at Gallaudet, because that was a lot of internal unpacking. And then just it took a minute to even just get to that place of, oh, whoa, and making that parallel. <laughs> being at Gallaudet and being first seen as a hearing person was, that was tough for me, just because I was like, oh, being seen as a hearing person and all of the assumptions of a hearing person attached to me right? So, oh, you're hearing, that means that you don't sign or that you have pity for me or that you don't want, you want to somehow take advantage of the deaf community or take advantage of me because I'm deaf. And unfortunately for many people, it's not assumptions that they're using, they're actual life experiences. So whether that's people taking advantage of them across the board in many different ways, or people truly seeing them as less than, because they're deaf. So seeing deafness before I see anything else and just assuming all these things about you because you are deaf. But I struggled with knowing that and then also realize, but but saying, but that's not me, right? But then also having to go through that process of saying, well, is it me? Hold on, why am I here? And what do I truly believe about deaf people? And am I willing to go through that process at times, multiple times, a minute. How do you feel about this? And what are you going to do about how you feel? I've never been a part of the majority. Don't consider myself a part of the majority. But what I realized being at Gallaudet is there is a lot of struggle with being um, part of a majority in certain contexts. It's easy for the minority to assume and to kind of heap these assumptions and negative feelings, but it becomes dangerous when it's cast out for the whole versus for those that you've actually had that encounter with. It was a lot. It still is a lot, but I process that it forces me to go through. And that's something that I, that I push even my teachers now at Eastland. And I'm like, hey, what is it that you believe about students? If it's a fluent child or a student from a fluent family, all the way to the other side of that, where it's like, oh no, we've got students or families who maybe is a single mother or what have you. And it's like, oh, well, I assume these things because you're from the socioeconomic background. Um, so pretty sure there's a really sophisticated word for this process and I don't know it, but um, the idea of being able to 
always reflect on what we believe and why we believe it or what we think and being okay with saying, hey, these thoughts that I have are not my own and so I'm going to replace them or I'm going to hold off on making these thoughts beliefs. So that was a very long answer to your question, but I think that process for unpacking who am I, Barbara, because I didn't have a deaf person in my family. I didn't go to Gallaudet with, you know, oh, my brother, my sister, my mom, my cousin, or even like a friend who's deaf. So I felt like I didn't automatically belong in a group for hearing people there. And I think that that was part of the challenge for me in the beginning, because it would have been much easier just to say, oh yeah, I'm here because my mom is deaf or my cousin's deaf or my friend is deaf, but I didn't have that. And I didn't come in fluent in the language either. So it was crazy humbling, which is good. Because I think that humility, one, and that process for trying to figure out what is it that I believe, why am I here? And that process not being something that's automatic for me, like, oh, you're here because of this. It was something that I had to come to discover. And that process was really good, but at the same time, challenging. Oh, I bet. So during that process, what I love is not many people have a catalyst or a moment or an event that forces them to be humble. And here you're choosing this path that every day, every moment as you're teaching deaf students makes you do that. I I think that's so incredible. So you were at Fanwood for about 10 years, and I want to get to another part of your career that's even more amazing. You are now in Charlotte. And so I I could spend a lot of time talking about your experience at Fanwood and it sounds like an incredible experience. How did you end up back South and how did you end up in Charlotte opening up a school? (laughs) We moved down in 2017 and I was also pregnant with our third son. So it was like all the, all the change, all the things happening at once. So 2017 was a very interesting year for us. Lots of change, lots of other like just realizations of you think you have control and then you don't in real life. You just don't, but all very good. So I took a position at a charter school here in Charlotte when I moved, when we moved. And it was my first experience in the charter world. I didn't really know much about charter schools, but I was like, you know, this would be a great opportunity for me to get to know what charter schools are, but then also understand how the school systems specifically in Charlotte work, right? So like big picture of the state of North Carolina and being in the South and then going very specific to Charlotte. And I learned a lot in the, the year that I was at the charter school and just my first year in Charlotte as it relates to education. I saw a lot of educational challenges, particularly the disparities of education. A lot of the assumptions that I had about education, like, of course, you would want to do this. And of course, you want to make sure that every child has access or that every child has opportunities. Or of course, as a school, you're going to really make sure as a school district or as a school that you're going to make sure that every child has A, B, and C. And then moving to Charlotte and and realizing that that was not the case consistently. It was hard. It was really hard. Hard. But I know now, hindsight's always 2020, that I had to see the state of the educational system in Charlotte and in, in North Carolina to be able to be a part of and create the vision for Movement School Eastland. I'd like to say that I'm taking truly what I believe about Kenton education and parents and the responsibility that schools have in facilitating education and learning for children from that I learned from Fanwood and from Gallaudet but then also seeing um, what was missing in Charlotte and putting those two together to create Movement School Eastland. So I was at that charter school for a year and then was given the opportunity to found and lead Movement School Eastland in 2018. And it's been an amazing, amazing ride. It's crazy. As you're saying, we're, we're in week, I don't even know at this point, three, maybe. Um, Four. Four. Thank you. Give yourself that week because every day matters. That that is a long week, let me tell you. Yes. But I'm just so grateful and excited for how our team is pretty phenomenal as it relates to everyone has a story of how they've come and it's not traditional. I found out about the position of being school director, founding school director at a birthday party for my two-year-old from a woman that I had just met, right? Like, so that's, that's not coincidence. And then we have people on our team who I had one, I have one teacher. She was like, 
was actually applying to movement organization for a loan officing position because I was sick of being a teacher because I was just disenchanted with it. But then I saw that movement actually has schools and I was like, oh, maybe I'll look into that. And then I looked into it and fell in love. And now she, she's one of, you know, we, all of our teachers are pretty fantastic, but just those kinds of stories where it's like everyone is supposed to be here. And that's something I tell my team all the time. It's like, it's pretty awesome when you're on a team with people who are supposed to be here, who understand their purpose in that. And we believe in iron sharpening iron. And so there, our culture is very much, we are a culture of feedback. We are a culture of process. You know, we really focus on the process over the product. And that's something that for recovering perfectionists, it's a good thing (laughs) to really be able to look at the process and and embrace that process versus feeling like you have to have something right all the time, because then the purpose isn't always in what's right. It's in what you learn through it. It's just been amazing. So we have about 186 students for kindergarten and first grade. Can you share the mission behind Movement School? I know there's two campuses, but for our listeners who aren't familiar with the story in the background, can you share a little bit about Movement first? Sure. So Movement Schools Network really birthed out of the desire of Casey Crawford, who is the founder of Movement Mortgage Company. His desire to create schools that are of incredible, I would say impeccable, but that's just being biased, but incredible quality that are accessible to all students and all families. So the idea is to create schools that are high quality educational choice for families in all types of communities. And so Casey is the founder of the mortgage company and the schools are a part of the foundation for movement mortgage. Um, and so with your school, it started four weeks ago. What is the makeup of the school? How many students are there? Sure. So we have hundred, about 186 students. We'll likely have about 190. And it's kindergarten and first grade students. So East Charlotte is incredibly diverse. It is a refugee resettlement location in the state of North Carolina. So we have a lot of immigrant and refugee families, as well as honestly, true diversity in this community. So we have families from all socioeconomic backgrounds, family makeups. We were just doing a tally of the number of languages that are represented in our school. And we have about eight, which is super fun. And I'm learning about different languages that I didn't know existed. So that's another plus. Again, we are kindergarten and first grade. We'll be adding a grade every year up to eighth grade. We have this amazing new building that was that we built. We also, one thing that is part of who we are as movement schools is we believe in community connections and again, just in community partnerships. So we are looking to work with a local hospital to provide a clinic or to just set up a clinic or build a clinic on top on our second floor because we're growing into our building. And so partnering with a local hospital to provide health support to families as they need it is pretty awesome and something that we've done already at our first campus. And it's just been really awesome to see. So I think it's incredible that it starts with two grades and then every year you're growing into the school. As one of the founding directors, what are some of the programs that you're adding to the school because it's really a blank slate and you can add a lot more of, you know, Barbara's vision. So what are some of the programs that you added? Absolutely. So for us, it's about, we say it all the time, it's like DVP, it's dignity, value, and purpose. That's really what guides everything that we do at our school. And so our programs reflect that. So we lead with virtue and we have a virtue program. We have a director of culture and that's one of the things that she kind of fits under her her umbrella is she and I work together to create virtue lessons. And we have 15 virtues that we kind of address so that we teach throughout the year. So for example, like dignity is one, perseverance, self-control. We talk about respect and responsibility. So, and we're, we're very specific and intentional with the focus that we have on, on virtues and why we call them virtues, because we want to go deeper. Like a lot of schools have character and that's awesome, but character is developed through the teaching of virtues. It's not just something that, oh, we tell you to be nice or we tell you to respect and we go over this definition and now you know it. That's not typically how kids learn. So because we lead with virtue, we really are specific in how we introduce and break down not just the definitions, but we model and we emphasize living out these virtues throughout the year. So that's one thing that virtues is one, we lead with those. I think our instructional program is pretty amazing. So when I think about best practices or just what's best for kids, 
we really believe in small group instruction. And so small group instruction happens for 90% or more of the school day where students are not in groups greater than eight. And actually with COVID, it's probably more like five, which is exciting. And it just really provides an opportunity for more personalized instruction. If, there, if I have smaller groups as a teacher, I can get to know you, the specific student, your individual needs, meet you where you are, and then take you where you need to be. So there isn't any teaching to the middle. There's not, oh, I'm in a group or I'm in a class and I've got to wait for my peers because I've got this concept and I got it early. So I have to wait for the rest of the class to move before I get to move on. We don't do that at Eastland. It truly is, okay, you're ready for this next concept. Let's move you through it or let's move you to it because you're already in a small group. I mean, and we tell parents too, which is exciting. If we have a kindergarten student who's ready for first grade, you're going to first grade content. We're going to first grade content right? doesn't mean you're going necessarily to first grade, but first grade content. So we're moving with your child versus feeling like your child has to either wait or that your child is now becoming a teacher for the other kids in the class. So for us, it's being able to provide that more personalized instruction within those small groups is just really key. That's something that's not only awesome and crazy beneficial for students, but also for teachers. As a teacher, we have been in that situation where, oh, okay, I've got all these kids. So I have to plan and teach to the middle. And then I may have my kids who are on either side, but then I have to figure out a time to actually address their needs versus, no, I have the opportunity to have these small groups and the small groups are flexible. So if Johnny's in my group today and then next week he's ready to move into a different group, we can do that because again, it's the small group piece. I love that. I mean, there's, I have so many questions and I feel like we could spend hours and hours talking about this because like the education component and all that. One question I, I did have is, you have such a broad experience set of teaching. So with the deaf component, with the the hearing component, different ages, different demographics, different zip codes, what have you learned the most from all of your educational experiences, also with coaching in the girls' basketball? But what are some of the more surprising things that you've learned throughout your educational career? It's not just the importance of reflection, but being open to it. And I think that that's a hard thing. You have to be open to it. And I mean, being a mom of three boys, my kids teach me so much about all the things about myself all the time, right? Whether I want to know it or not. But just with my own kids in the classroom, regardless of, to your point, ability, socioeconomic status, whatever, children will teach you when you're open to learning. And it just makes you a better person. It makes you a better teacher. It makes you better, especially when we are charged with the amazing opportunity and responsibility of truly teaching children. I think in our country, there's just this assumption that I have this information and I impart it on you and it's just from me to you. But, and that's honestly how our education system has been, generally speaking, for a really long time in this, in this country. But that's not true education. The best education is when I, as the adult and I, as the teacher, am open to the learning happening both ways. The impact that that has on the child is huge, and then also the adult as well. So I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned is the importance of the reflection, but also the power of it for myself and for my students. And you know, now my team of teachers, when you're coaching and you have a team of adults, it's the same thing. And I think that when I think about this process, it's not just with adult and kids, it's adult to adult as well. There's humility there. If I, and we say it all the time at Eastland, you know, we all bring something to the table. We have to be open to to hearing it and we have to be open to giving it as well. When you have that mentality, it makes a world of difference. We'll have a much better world. I love that. (laughs) Once we all get to that place. That would be amazing, right? If the individuals got there collectively and then the collective change, that would be amazing. All right, I'm going to go through a few of my typical questions. Who or what inspires you? I think my parents definitely. It's not a thing. I know my parents inspire me. The older you get, the more you realize all the things. I am inspired by their determination and their incredible work ethic. But more importantly, they're visionaries. And my dad it definitely leads that, but my mom is right there with them. And nothing's too big and nothing's too hard. And I think that having that mentality and seeing how that has continues to manifest itself in their life is just really inspiring to me. And, you know, I listened to a speaker once who said, don't limit God. And that's truly what my parents don't do. They're like, yeah, okay, let's, you know, obviously it's not just, oh, let's do this thing and do it quickly, but it's, why not? 
if this is something that we really want to do, why not? My parents have, they continue to just truly inspire me. Sometimes I want them to slow down because I'm like, hey. <laughs> well, you started this school during the pandemic. I think that's pretty exceptional. <laughs> so you're not too far from, from that. What are you most proud of so far? Hmm. I am proud of this team that we have at Eastland. I am proud of being in the place where we are as a school and seeing something that was truly a vision that went from the mind to, you know, obviously you're mapping things out and on paper, but like to see something actually come to life and the, the way that it has with the people that it has and to have the enthusiasm and the commitment and the heart of the team is something that I am incredibly proud of. And I know, and I'm excited about what that's going to look like middle of the year, at the end of the year and five years here at Eastland. It's, it's pretty awesome. Sounds awesome. Uh, one thing I forgot to ask is we've talked about it a little bit, but you are the mother of three boys, two of which are similar to age kids to mine. And I don't know how you're doing all the things you're doing because in the last four weeks, I feel like I'm losing my hair and I'm just going crazy. And I'm probably keeping up with the wine supply business in our town because it's the only thing getting me by. And then on top of that, I mean, you're raising three kids, you are working full time. And in that full time job, you were opening up a school and you're the director of that. How are you doing this all? And to the extent you can share some advice or tips, because I know that almost every working parent is struggling. And so, yes, please tell me how you keep a smile on that face. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> Definitely the grace of God. And I think the the wine is also a, a good thing. <laughs> no, but seriously, Christian has totally been an amazing support. And he has just truly stepped up because I do know that especially when the school year was just being launched, I mean, I was up at three in the morning and there was no way that I would have been able to function and our boys' needs would not have been met, <laughs> or at least the, the degree in which they would have been met would have been really concerning uh, had I been the one to do it. So fully, like truly he's stepped up. I think sometimes my personality is when you're in it, you're in it. And so I don't fully recognize all that I'm in. I'm just trying to move through. And then hindsight, I'm like, oh, whoa, these are stressful times. And I, something that I just try to remember is that it's not going to be perfect and that's okay. So letting go of that and giving myself myself permission to to let that go. And that's a process. I'm not going to pretend that it's not, but I've learned that I put the most pressure on myself. So if I can lessen the amount of pressure that I put on myself, it'll make things a lot better for everyone involved. And so that's what I continue to do. I mean, definitely there are times when I am like, I want all the things to happen the way they're supposed to happen yesterday. And so there's tension in that. And then I have that moment and then I'm like, all right, that's not the case. So what can we do? I try to give myself grace and try to give others grace as well. Easier said than done and many times, but I feel like if COVID hasn't taught us anything else, it's just that we don't have control. You think we think that we do. And after a while, we just have to let go of that illusion because that's exactly what it is, you know? So I say this quote repeatedly to myself and I got it from Sarah Pampiano, this triathlete. And she said, there are so many things you can't control. And so her coach told her something that stuck with her and I steal it for myself because it resonates. And it's that you can only control what you can control. And if that means it's just a positive mindset or, you know, having a workout for the day or doing something that gives you just a hit of dopamine that day. But I keep saying that because I feel sometimes so helpless, especially in this environment. But one thing I wanted to ask you is with all your academic background and knowledge, has that affected or impacted the way that you parent? Such a great question. And if so, tell me all your secrets because I need them. <laughs> I notice when I move into teacher mode with my kids versus mom mode. Sometimes I'm like, I remind myself, you are their teacher, you're their mother, but they need their mother first, right? Like in whatever situation, but often it's more the opposite of like, hey, you just use that teacher move with your kid. You should be using it all the time because he listened and it worked. What is a teacher move or what is the difference to you between a mom and a teacher? So for example, Let's just use yesterday as an example. I told my boys to go upstairs, it's getting ready for bedtime, starting the bedtime routine, go upstairs, take your clothes off. It's time to get ready for, to take your bath. And my seven-year-old's pretty self, he's self-sufficient. So he'll let go and he'll do it. And he takes a shower separately, all the things. And then my four-year-old's like, but I want to wrestle with my two-year-old. So they want to go upstairs and, oh, we went upstairs, but we don't at all start what you've asked us to do. 
normally or like mom mode, which is the yell upstairs boys. Didn't I just say do this? And what should you be doing right now? And like moving into that tone. (laughs) And yesterday I just went upstairs. I looked at them. I'm waiting for Ellis to do what I've asked him to do, like start the whole like teacher mode. Right. So I have two friends who are doing what I, what I asked them to do. I'm still waiting for one friend to add to do what I've asked him to do. And so I did that yesterday. I was like, I have three boys. Langston has done what I've asked him to do. Great job, Langston. So glad that you're in the shower, buddy. And then my four-year-old's like, oh, I'm, I'm going, mommy. I'm going into the shower. I'm taking my clothes off. I'm getting into the bathtub. And I'm like, great. And I'm like, that was a teacher move, right? Of just like, you know, the mom move for me was do what I've asked you to do because it's time to go to bed and all the things. But in this situation, it was just that positive narration and of course the peer pressure, my boys are crazy competitive already. So it's like, oh, he just got some attention. Hold on. Let me go get some, let me go do what you want me to do. And yeah, you know, so that's, that's probably not a really great example, but just the idea of that. And then I've also, especially in <laughs> remote instruction for both my boys, I think they love when Christian's the one that's manning the instruction and not me, because I'm always going deeper. And I'm like, well, here's something else that you can do. But my seven-year-old last week was like, but my teacher didn't say I had to do that. And I was like, I know, but mommy wants to see that you do it. And I was like, you've got time where I can ask, you know, we can incorporate this into your schedule. And he was like, no, mommy, I'm going to get in trouble if I do that. And I was like, pretty sure you won't. But, you know, he's like, my teacher didn't give it to me. Don't give it to me. I don't want this extra work. I don't want to give you more information than what my teacher says that I have to do. So it's funny. But I, and I'm like, well, mommy's your mommy. and I'm also your teacher. And I don't know if he loves that, but <laughs> I need to use some of your patience because I'm the kind of like the person in Wedding Crashers where Will Ferrell says, Ma, meatloaf. I'm just, I'm screaming at my kids when I ask them after two times and I just get so frustrated and I, it's not their fault. They're just kids and they want to wrestle before bedtime. And meanwhile, I'm like, no, stick to the schedule. I need you in bed because I want my own time. <laughs> it's, it's my impatience. Yeah, 100%. So I'm totally there too. And I do try to outsmart. So there's this challenge of myself is like, you should be able to approach this in a smarter way, you know, of like just Jedi them, right? Like, Oh, you know, I said cookies, but I really, they're vegetable filled or what, you know, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, it's funny. I read this negotiation book by the head, his name is Chris Voss, and he writes this book, Never Split the Difference. And the idea is, you know, he was head of the FBI's hostage negotiation team, but it reads similar to another parenting book that has the same thing. And one is lead with empathy. And so even though they're irrational, you know, two to four year olds, you still treat them as if, you know, you're trying to logically talk to them. And one thing I took away from that book that was so interesting is when asking someone a question, ask them what or how. And when you start it with that, it lifts the balance of kind of power in that relationship. And so because it was similar to this parenting book, I asked my irrational four-year-old, how does that make someone feel? And when asking that question, he has to respond. It really diffuses the situation so quickly. And versus, I mean, that's something I've learned because otherwise I'm a screamer and I'm so impatient with them. And it's taught me just to take a second yeah, and breathe I'm gonna, just I'm gonna for a second. I'm going to write that down for myself. <laughs> oh, it's oh, I, I, easier said than done. I ask all my guests to discuss some of their biggest struggles or failures. What is one of, or perhaps the most impactful growth moment that you can share that has helped shape you or that you've learned the most from? One of the biggest ones that when I talked about before with Gallaudet and just that process of honestly reflecting and being open to humility and knowing that that's okay. And that's what's stronger than force. Humility can be just as assertive, if not more than the loudest shout, right? And so I think that that is something that I've learned and I continue to learn. (laughs) Life continues to want me to learn that. I think that's the biggest one. I love that saying. I wrote it down. Humility can be louder than a shout. I love that so much. Are there any books that have greatly impacted you? Yes. I always like to steal people's book recommendations. There are. The one that just comes to mind right now is there are two actually, which is they're both completely different books, but like the message is very much the same. Invisible Man is my favorite book by Ralph Ellison, like hands down, always has been. And it continues to be because it's the story of self-realization. You know, obviously as the main character is coming to know himself, he's also coming to know his world, our world and our society and, and trying to figure out 
what that means for him and how to, in some ways, overcome that. So there's that. And I just think it's such a beautiful story. That's a hard one, but a, a really beautiful one about discovering of self in spite of the assumptions and the labels and the stigmas that may be placed on you. So that, that one. And then the giving tree is also just one of my favorite. <laughs> just the message is really beautiful. So, well, these are great. I'm going to start with the giving tree because that is way shorter and digestible. And then I'm going to put invisible man on my next October reading to-do list. You can get the cliff notes version. Can you please write it for me? That'd be great. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for joining me on the show. This was a wonderful conversation and I wish I could spend many more hours doing this, but I'll just have to have you back on. I'm, I'm just grateful for the opportunity. And this has been a lot of fun and grateful for the journey. That's what this is, right? And so it's good. So I guess the parting words would be embrace the journey because it's good and bad because it, it's your journey and nobody else is doing it. And so for good and bad.